preview of coming attractions. We will be in Isaiah for a couple more weeks, two or three more weeks. Um, the, the break that we've talked about would be at the end of chapter 39. That's sort of the logical break point in the book of Isaiah, uh, where the focus then turns to the, the servant who is to come for the most part. Um, and, and then so after that, after those next couple, three weeks, when we get through chapter 39, uh, we will take up the book of James for the summer and then come back to Isaiah again in the fall. Merriam-Webster is uh, the regarded authority on words and definitions in the United States. From time to time, they add new words. Last fall, Merriam-Webster added 455 new words to the dictionary, which says a lot of us are behind in our vocabulary, apparently. Uh, but one of those was, was am I right? A-M-I-R-I-T-E. Um, Eh, you know, I'm kind of an old guy, and so it still seems like it should be, am I right? But anyway, that's just uh, one of the words that was added. Three years ago, Merriam-Webster added the word influencer. An influencer, somebody who um, has a, a, a pressure of some kind, a um, guiding, inspiring role on the culture that affects the actions of other people. As we've been studying this book of Isaiah, we have frequently encountered the work of influencers. Although they're not called that 3,000 years ago, they are leaders, judges, elders, prophets, priests, folks who have a function in some way where they are affecting the culture of Judah, the Jewish people around Jerusalem. They are influencing them in, in some way by their counsel, by the things that they teach. These were Proud men who dramatically shaped Jewish thought and culture and obedience or lack thereof to their God. Nearly 3,000 years later, we have a, an established system of, of governors and lawmakers and bureaucrats and all those who, who make and enforce rules. But we also have a, a large, powerful cadre of influencers, the, the talking heads and the commentators and the columnists and the outspoken voices and the, the blue check marks on Twitter and the content creators on TikTok, who have millions of followers, uh, all of these people who have sort of outsized influence on the culture by virtue of the, the media and their being able to speak to, to millions at once. And many openly and without hesitation will declare this is right or this is wrong and, and this is what we should do or should not do. So as we continue to survey Isaiah, and in particular we're going to see corrupt arrogant, even today it will describe drunken leaders, those who have been put in positions of influence and authority, it is no stretch to see how the same thing happens today. This is really a tale about bad leadership and the people who follow these leaders. It is kind of a bleak account in one sense. It is kind of a warning message, if you will. As we look through these things that these, these leaders, these influencers do, it's important to remember that there were a people who were compliant to follow them, who, despite the, the word of the prophet, despite the word of the Lord, were willing to follow these who, who were leading them, or at least not oppose them. And, and we face the same sorts of influences today, and the same sorts of challenges to just go along, to get along, to not oppose, to not make waves, to, to maybe not be criticized or mocked in some way. And so we we face that as well, and so this is, a, this is a warning sermon. This is the kind of thing that we see frequently in the pastoral epistles, where there's warnings about false teachers and others who will come and who will lead people astray and who will cause disruption and disunity. 
That's what this will be in some sense. The Bible speaks a great deal about the role of influencers, but it calls them leaders at various levels. God ordains those who are governing authorities in order to maintain peace and order within society, and he ordains those to lead within the local church and calls them elders and tells them that you are to speak the word of the Lord. You are to tell what is right and good based on God's word. That's the standard. If God's word says it is right, then then it is, and if God's word says it is wrong, then regardless of what the culture says, what the influencer says, we are to call that wrong. So for we who profess faith in Christ, then the, the issue, the, the, the tension for us comes with how, how we deal with this relentless tide of influence that comes to us through entertainment and social media and commentary and all of the different sources that speak into our lives, especially when those things contradict God's truth. So we're going to just identify some of the ways these influencers worked in Isaiah. We'll look at 28 through 30 this morning, then we'll go 31 through 35 roughly next week. Um, This is largely now focusing back on Judah. If if you've been with us in our study of Isaiah, you know that Isaiah is a prophet who is speaking to the Jewish people largely in and around Jerusalem in that southern kingdom of Judah. And that from chapters 13 to 23, he sort of expanded the, the reach and, and spoke to Judah's neighbors, the Gentile nations around, and he pronounced God's judgment on them, but also hope of restoration for those who would come to the, the, to the Lord, to Yahweh as king and, and worship him. And then in chapters 24 through 27, Pastor Stewart a few weeks ago took you through that um, image of the city of God and the city of man, the, the, the big picture, if you will, that God ultimately reigns and rules and defeats the city of man. Well, here in chapter 28, it's now back on Judah. Isaiah the prophet is now speaking largely to the leaders of Judah, although he first will spend the first third or so of chapter 28 speaking about the northern kingdom. The Jewish people, you'll recall, are two kingdoms. Southern kingdom is Judah, capital of Jerusalem. Northern kingdom is Israel, capital of Samaria. Northern kingdom has been in rebellion against God throughout its history. Southern kingdom has been sort of up and down. So he's going to use the northern kingdom in his first sort of illustration, teaching, if you will, as kind of an object lesson for Judah and, and for what will go wrong if they continue down the path they are on. But, but most of these couple of chapters we're going to look at this morning, 28 to 30, it's God confronting Judah and its leaders and saying, this, this, is, this is how your leaders are taking you down a path of destruction. I am, I am here to try to rescue you, to redeem you, but these leaders are seeking to destroy you. And God's warnings here, I think, are warnings for us. And so this morning, as we see Judah's influencers leading the nation astray, I, I'm going to try to tie that back into our own world today and, and the same temptation to be complicit sometimes, and the things that are spoken around us. So Isaiah 28, let me read the first four verses. We'll we'll skip through at different points. We won't cover all three of these chapters in their entirety. As we've been doing, it'll be more of a survey. But let me read the first four verses of Isaiah 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, The Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. 
The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. I'm going to go through seven points this morning of influence. We did an eight-pointer just a few weeks ago, so you know we can do this and we can still get it done in a reasonable amount of time, so don't be, don't be too worried about seven points. In fact, we're going to take the first two together. So here we knock out two right from these first four verses. The influencers of Judas' culture reveled in their own greatness while at the same time they failed to see their own finitude. They failed to understand their own mortality while all the time thinking, they were strong and, and had it all under control. He, he uses Ephraim here, and he speaks of this fading flower. They wear this sort of proud crown, he alludes to in verse 1, verse 3. It's the idea of a wreath. Samaria was, as, as many capital cities in that day and age, city on a hill, a fortress sort of idea, um, and, and shaped enough so that its appearance based on its walls, the top of it looked kind of like a wreath. At least that's what archaeologists tell us about Samaria, that it had this wreath-like appearance. And a wreath in that culture was something that was worn by the one who was champion in the athletic competition or who was prosperous in some way or who was reveling in some way, party-going, if you will, in some way. But that wreath was something that signified prosperity and gladness. And, and, and so he's using that picture to make his point that to Judah, that Israel's leaders, remember how confident they were, how, how strong they were, how much they, they reveled and they partied to the point of just drunkenness. Even the approach of the Assyrian army that is coming to, to, to bring God's judgment on them, even the approach of that army doesn't seem to stop their revelry or to stop their, their own thoughts of greatness. They don't see themselves as anything less than champions. Verse 7 says, even the prophets and priests were drunk, foolishly arrogant. One of the things that Isaiah will say to the people of Judah in chapter 30 is, you've got this mentality that all you want to hear is good stuff. You want the prophets of God, he says, to speak smooth things and prophesy illusions. Don't preach judgment. Don't preach about things that might threaten us in some way or cause us to run to God, to have to be fearful because we, we just want to hear good stuff. We want to hear that we're good and strong and right and, and we have nothing to fear. I, I would suggest to you that this still happens. The, the worldly influencers of, of our culture are still proud. They, they're, they're still happy to look into the camera and say, look at my wonderful life. Look at all I've got. Don't, don't you wish you could be part of my happy circle of, of prosperity? If you could just you know, be a part of all the things that I do and buy all the products that I'm, I'm sponsored by, um, you know, it, your life would be good too. There, there's this sense of just greatness, almost immortality. And, and yet, God, look what he says, verse 1 again. He says, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty. He says, you know that wreath that's on your head? It doesn't last forever. It, it eventually fades. And he'll say that again in verse 4, the fading flower of its glorious beauty. And he goes on to use the illustration of the ripe fig. For us, it might be the, the, the blueberry bush that you see, and it's first started to have fruit on it. And it's so exciting when the first fruit is there, and you grab it, and you eat it, and it's so good to have it because it, you haven't had it all winter. But he's saying that fig, as attractive as it was, as young and strong and vibrant as it was, is now swallowed and devoured, and it's gone. 
And in contrast to that, verse 5 says, in that day, in that day when you think that you're so great and you're going to be devoured, in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem, a crown of beauty to the remnant of his people. His contrast here is to say you, you are putting your hope in your own greatness and vitality and strength. And remember that what stands in contrast to that is it, it, it will fade. But God's beauty, God's glory, God's greatness, that will remain. When all of, all of what you have and all that you think you are fades and becomes weak and ineffective and dies, know that God will remain. God stands. This is an object lesson. This is, hey Judah, look at the northern kingdom. And in fact, as he's writing this, he's writing this again somewhere around the 700s, somewhere between 730, 705 BC. What we do know is 722 BC was the end of Israel. That was when the Assyrian army came to uh, Samaria, captured some 30,000 of its residents, took them out as exiles. And for the most part, that northern kingdom at that point is done. The next place that we sort of see the northern kingdom is when Jesus comes to Galilee and there is still a, a remnant of Jewish people, but we see largely what's called the Samaritans, the people that live north of Judah, and that's that mixed race people. That came about because of the Assyrians. That was their tactic. Take you, move you out of your land, put you in another land where you are now a foreigner with foreign culture and foreign language, and so you can't get strong to fight the enemy because you, you can't get along with all of these people just yet because you can't speak their language, and, and assimilate other people into what was your land. And so this is, he, he's speaking to Judah and saying that it's, they, they were drunken with revelry. They thought, we've got crowns on our heads. Nobody can touch us. And they are no more. But the glory of God remains. Are we convinced that all we see from the, the popular and beautiful influencers in our culture, are we reminded and convinced that they are fading? They will fade. That all that they have, all that we're tempted to be drawn toward, all that we're tempted to, to crave in some way, will be gone. And what will remain is the glory of God among the remnant of his people. That, that should be our ambition. That should be our desire. All right, third, the influencers thought that they could create their own salvation. I say that because down in, at the end of verse 15, in, in chapter 28, he is, he is repeating back, and, and, and we'll touch in on verse 14 in just a few minutes, but this, this sort of scoffing language of those who are speaking back to Isaiah and saying, oh, you're saying this and you're saying that and you're altogether wrong, but, but go ahead and you can say these things. And one of the things that's being said that Isaiah is saying, this, this is your mentality. You, you won't admit it, but this is the way you are. At the end of verse 15, he says, for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. His, his point is, you're trying to, to save yourselves. You think that you're making a refuge. And you actually believe all of this self-made hype about your own greatness. And you think that you can rescue yourselves. You can save yourselves from whatever you need rescue from. It's the we got this sort of thing. We, we don't need any help. We, we can take care of this. And it's easy to think that when you have the wrong assessment of what it is you need to be saved from. It's easy to think... I. I can make my own salvation when you misunderstand what it is that you need to be saved from. For the Israelites, and then for the people of Judah, the, the primary thought is enemy nations, in particular Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. And we've got to, 
figure out how to save ourselves from the Assyrian Empire, and so it's diplomacy, it's, it's military strength, it's, it's forming alliances, it's all the things that we can sort of manufacture and do, and that's, that's how we will save us. But what they were blind to is what God has been telling them through Isaiah, is that the one that empowered the Assyrian Empire, the one who is using the Assyrian Empire to, to work in their lives, is God himself. It is God who has taken the Assyrians to use them as an instrument of his judgment against their sin. So ultimately, it's God from whom they need to be saved. And so when they try to concoct their own sort of rescue from Assyria, look at how God responds in verse 16 of Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. God's message here is, you're worried about the Assyrians. I am the one who is the stone that, that will cause you to stumble. We, we know that this language of cornerstone and foundation will get picked up in the New Testament, and, and, and it will be instructed to us that this is Jesus who is that cornerstone. He is that foundation upon whom people either run to and stake their lives on, or they stumble over him in disbelief and unbelief. But here what God is saying is, I am that cornerstone that will cause you to stumble. I am the one that you should fear. If, if you're thinking that you need some kind of salvation, you need to look to me first because you need rescue from my judgment. God had already told them, listen, when it comes to Assyria, if you will trust me, you will not need to fear them or run from them because I will provide for you. I will be your protector. But they've already dismissed that. And so God is now saying, I will sweep away your refuge and I will overwhelm your shelter. I am the one from whom you need rescue my righteousness, my justice. The, the influencers of our day speak a lot about all of the different things that are wrong with our world that we need to be rescued from in some way. Climate change, vaccines, pandemics, social injustice, rigged election, sexual repression, gender inequality, limits on my freedom to do whatever I want. I, did I cover enough from all sorts of bases on that one? Now listen, I, I'm not saying that there are not legitimate biblical wrongs that need to be addressed and that the church needs to speak to on, on all that. I'm not trying to just categorize all of that stuff as bad stuff. But what I'm saying is the influencers have this attitude that these are the crises. These are the things from which we need rescue. These are the things from which we need saving. And what they've more often than not lost is the fact that the heart of every single individual is desperately wicked and in need of transformation. And that can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the true rescue that we need is from the judgment of our sin, and that only comes through the work of Jesus Christ in dying on the cross and rising again, and in Him there is rescue and salvation. All of the other things are, are secondary ultimately to that. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is the single greatest, most powerful transformational message. It is why the church needs to be proclaiming the gospel over and above everything else, that that's the, the hope of this generation and generations to come. All right, I mentioned verse 14 before. Let me come back to that. 28, 14, he says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, 
who rule this people in Jerusalem. Here's, here is as direct a statement as you can get with the Lord saying, here's, here's your rulers, here's what they are. They are scoffers. And these influencers of the culture are scoffers who mock the word of God. That is a, a strong word. That's not a word about people who, who just describing those who are ignorant, who, who don't seem to fully understand the word. This is, the scoffers are those who, who hear it and who take the word of God and they spin it around and go in the opposite direction or they mock the word of God. They assault the word of God in some way. They scoff at it. And, and they look at God's word as if it is just myths. It's some kind of man-made tales. And, and scoffers is the name Isaiah is using as he's addressing the leaders of Jerusalem. Multiple examples of this. God says to them, you don't need to fear Syria. You need to trust me and I will protect you. What do they do? They actually go and form an alliance with the Assyrians. They send money to the Assyrians and send protection money and say, hey, listen, if you would help us, we've got some other enemies we don't like in, in Israel, in the northern kingdom, and, and, and Syria, north of that. And if you'll help us with that, they, they run to the very people that they should not have run to when God says, trust me. When God commands the rulers to be humble and just and righteous and honest in all of their dealings. What we keep seeing over and over again from the Old Testament prophets is those who were in authority crushed those who were weak. They took advantage of them at every opportunity they could. They oppressed wherever they could. They mocked. They were scoffers. When God told them to listen to his word and to his prophets, they begin turning to idols. We've read it before in Isaiah. They turned to those who they believed could communicate with the dead so that they could get something else. We want, we want to hear something else from someone else. That is, that is the definition of scoffing. Today, scoffers still reject God's word and his righteousness. They still mock it. They, they encourage you to doubt the Bible, not just read it carefully, but to rip it apart and doubt it. They ridicule the Christian faith. They distort the identity of Jesus Christ. They advocate for a God who is of your own design, that, that God can be whatever you want God to be. Like I said, these kind of warnings are throughout the New Testament. Philippians 3 says, There are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They are scoffers. They don't simply hear the word of God, but, but they are gloriously about their own pleasure and their own delight. They scoff at the Lord, and they call you stupid for not joining in with them. God has a warning to them here in Isaiah 28. It's down in verse 22. Isaiah 28, verse 22 says, Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds... He's talking about chains of imprisonment. Lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. His warning to the scoffers is, You are already sinning against God, and you are enslaved to your sin and in rebellion to Him. Don't make it worse. Don't continue to mock God's words because you're just making those chains that much stronger that holds you. God is just and he will judge scoffers. All right, last part of chapter 28 of Isaiah. It's, a, it's another one of these familiar, we've seen farming illustrations that Isaiah uses because he's dealing with an agrarian culture. He's dealing with people who understand agricultural illustrations and, and the light comes on when he uses these. So he uses another one here from verse 23 down to the end of the chapter. So let me just read part of this. Isaiah 28, verse 23. He says, give ear, hear my voice, give attention, and hear my speech. These are all imperatives. Listen, pay attention, hear this. And then he says this, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? 
Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in row, uh, wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. And then he goes on about threshing of small grains and large grains. What, what's interesting is verse 23 was all these imperative verbs. Listen, give ear, hear, pay attention. And then he says, think about a farmer. Does a farmer just keep plowing and plowing and plowing? Does he scatter seed just sort of randomly all over the place? And you pause and go, what's he doing here? What, what am I giving attention to? What's, what's the point? Why is this so important? Verses 23 through 28 are stating common knowledge rules of farming. Basic stuff that every farmer understood. You don't plow ground endlessly. You plow it, and then you put seed in it, and you cover it, and you wait for it to grow. You don't take seeds of all different kinds of plants and just sort of throw them out in the garden and mix them all up and hope for the best and see what happens. You, you plant them in rows, right? Even those of us who've got our little gardens in the backyard know you kind of plant things in an orderly way, and, and then you know where they are, too. And he says you don't thresh small grain the same as you do large grain. What Isaiah is saying to them is, is, you know how the farmers know these things? Because this is God's design. This is God's creation. They have a, a, a sense of logic and how things work that has been given to them. So he says in verse 26, for he is rightly, this farmer is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. And then he says it again in verse 29. This also, this thing about threshing comes from the Lord of hosts, who's wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Isaiah's point is, even the common peasants know that God speaks forth his truth, that God has done things in an orderly and simple way, and they abide by it. And now you, wise counselors, you who think that you're so smart, you who, who, who are leading the people of Judah, you are clueless. You, you deny God's order in everything. You deny leading the people to God. Don't you understand the, the simplicity of this? Trust him. Do what the lowly farmers understand. They understand that there is a creator who is established in order, and he is a good creator, and if I follow his ways, he will bless, he will provide. And instead, they carry on in godless ways and, and, and act as if in their wisdom they are smarter than God himself. It's easy to understand how a nation of people like Judah could, could turn to the so-called experts of their day. Tell us, tell us what to do. You have the knowledge. You, you, got, the, you got the letters after your name. You got the blue check mark. You got the degree. You, you, must, you must be smart. You must know stuff. And so we'll listen to you. And even if Isaiah is over here saying, God says, trust me. Sit down beside the quiet brook and rest in my peace and know that I can protect you. <sighs> Give me something more than that. Give me something a little more complex that has been thought out, researched, and tested, and I'll, I'll listen to that. We live at a time when the, the experts have a host of reasons and justifications for behaviors that the Bible repeatedly calls sin. There are debates over what human life is, what defines a man or a woman, things that the Bible teaches clearly about. It says this is, this is your creator's design. You can either say, hmm, no. Now, it's got it's to be more complicated than that. Apparently the, the, apparently, the creator did not realize that millennia from now, scientists would figure out things he did not understand. That's the mentality of the culture and the influencers of the day. 
3,000 years ago, this nation of Judah is torn. And they are torn between God's prophet and between the the so-called wise counselors and leaders of the culture. And on the one side, they've got the prophet who says, this is God's truth. God is calling on you to obey him and to worship him with your whole heart and to trust him and, and rest in him. And on the other side, you've got the, well, that's not really what God meant. Just like Satan back in the garden. Is that really what God said? There's more to it than that. God didn't just mean this or that. And they begin to add to and distort and say, to sit still and trust God? Well, that's foolish. We've got to join in, be like the rest of the world, make alliances. Otherwise, we look like a laughingstock. God's people today can be just as easily torn between voices that say, this is the word of the Lord. Obey it. Follow it. And a culture that says, hmm, really old book, really outdated, really not very smart on a lot of current progressive things, and so you need to, you need to change and shift and grow, otherwise you'll be a laughingstock. If there's one thing you take from the study in Isaiah, especially this first half, if there's one thing you take away, it is this repeated message from God through Isaiah. Trust me. Stop running to everything and everyone else. Trust me. That's not, not to say that there's not a place for, for other people, for community, for, for being a part of the world and being engaged in the world, but ultimately at the core of your being and at your heart, trust God and his ways. Believe that what he says is true and rest in him. Trust is hard, especially when there's chaos and things going on around us. And that's what the, the people of Jerusalem are dealing with. Let me move to chapter 29. We'll go a lot quicker through 29 and 30. Uh, it starts 29 with, ah, Ariel, Ariel. That, that, that you understand as you read the context that he's talking about Jerusalem and pending siege that's coming on Jerusalem when he uses that word Ariel. Commentators have a number of different reasons why he uses that word. Nobody knows for sure exactly what this word Ariel, how it, how it fits here, if it's an altar hearth or it's something else. I'm not going to belabor it this morning because nobody's actually convinced that this is actually what it means. It's another name that he's using that would have been common in that era for Jerusalem. What I do want you to see, though, is that word ah. It's one of those places where I think the ESV sells us just a tad short. It, it's woe. It's the same word at the start of chapter 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards. Uh, it's later on in chapter 29, 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel. Chapter 30, ah, stubborn children. It's woe. Woe is a, 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 an interjection that is a pain, really, of some kind of lament. Ah sort of sounds like, ah, I got it. Just sort of a, a you know, I figured it out. I think woe is really probably better to communicate that this is an expression that city of Jerusalem, woe on you. God's judgment is coming, and that's what he's going to describe here at the beginning of chapter 29 when he says, I will encamp against you all around and besiege you with towers and raise, raise siege works. It's all about the, the, the pending siege of Jerusalem. But if you look a little further down, um, pick up in verse 9 with me, if you will. And this just gives us a little more insight into these leaders. He says, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers, 
And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't because it's sealed. When they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. Stop there. Sixth thing we know about the influencers of Judah's culture. They are spiritually blind. And they are leading others from out of their state of spiritual blindness. The, the, the people of Judah thought themselves to be very spiritual. We, we, are, we are doing religious things. We have Yahweh figured out. The, the, the idea here is you, you bring offerings and you perform rituals and Yahweh does what he's supposed to do. He responds and he answers that. that that's, that's how they were told it worked because that's what they had learned from the, the other nations that surrounded them. That's how the neighbors practiced religion. You have a God or gods and you, you appease that God and that God in turn gives you what you want for, for whatever you've done. The God is there to serve you. But he says, you are speaking from utter blindness about these things. You can't see your hand in front of you. The book is, is as if it's closed to you and sealed. You, you don't understand spiritual truth. And in fact, he illustrates it for him, verse 13, describing their worship. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They're not actually fearing God. They're just told that this is something they're supposed to do. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. That word wonderful there is, another word for it is extraordinary. He's not saying we see wonderful and we think, oh, that's odd. He's going to silence the wise men and the discerners, but he's going to do wonderful, he's going to do good things. Now, it's wonderful in the sense of, I will do extraordinary things that you can't even fathom. It, it is God speaking about what he is about to bring on the nation. Because of their rebellion in worship and their rebellion against his word, he is saying, I'm going to, to bring things that will be extraordinary to you, that will silence your wise men and your so-called discerners. Because they are they're using worship as manipulation. They're doing worship as sort of ritual, not from any sense of true worship, and, and it's the fruit of spiritual blindness. It's man devising his own re religion. I, I, I'll, I'll worship as I want to worship, when I want to worship, who I want to worship, how I want to worship. Just, it, it, it's all about me fulfilling my own goals, me sort of self-actualizing. I, I do worship because it feels good, because it helps me, because it, it does something for me in some way. I want something, some payback from the work I put into it. They are spiritually blind. This is consistent with what Isaiah was told when he was commissioned into ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. You'll remember that God says to Isaiah that you are going to preach to the people, and what happens when you preach to them? It, their eyes will grow even more dim and more blind. Their ears will get stopped up even more. They will be more and more resistant. Even as you speak truth to them, you will... You will watch them as they simply close up more and more to the truth. And, and that's what's playing out here in chapter 29. You now have leaders who have taken the Jewish religion and turned it into entertainment, something that, that we hope gives God as our audience a good show so that he protects us in some way, when in fact they are doing these things because God's truth has become to them like a book that is sealed. They, they can't, they're blind to it. They can't read it. They can't comprehend it. 
We understand this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that at, when, when, when God saved you from sin, one of the things that he does is he, he now gives to you his spirit, his Holy Spirit to lead and to illuminate, to now make his word begin to, to, to come to life, to, to begin to see it, to understand it better, to see it more clearly, to be convicted by it, to be exhorted by it. And, and, and that's God's unique spiritual work in the lives of those who are born again. That, that the Word of God becomes the living and active Word of God. And for those who are spiritually blind, who are unbelievers, they can claim all the spiritual knowledge they want, but they're not speaking of sin or repentance. They are blind to what is truth. And, and essentially, they, they now begin in their blindness to try to hide from God. Verses 15 and 16, you hide deep from the Lord your counsel. They're, they're doing strategy meetings secret rooms, hoping God doesn't see them, that they can keep this from God somehow. When it comes to the, the potter and the clay, God says, you turn things upside down. You, you now regard the potter as the clay. You now regard me, the creator, as if I am the created. You, you've got it completely twisted. And in all of that, they have rejected God's authority. We need to be on guard against taking our lead from those who are spiritually blind against being influenced heavily by those who are unbelievers. We work alongside unbelievers. We are neighbors with unbelievers. Many of us are related to unbelievers. We love people, whether or not they love Jesus Christ, whether or not they have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are called to love them as neighbor and to serve them. And we do that. We do that because we want to bring the light of Christ, too, into their lives, and we want to show them that hope. But the, the, what proved disastrous for Judah is looking to those who are spiritually dead for important life counsel. Give me direction about what to do next. This is the same kind of warning that 2 Corinthians 6.14 gives when it speaks of do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We often use that in terms of marriage, but it really it speaks broadly of life. Don't put yourself into a situation where you are bound to be led by somebody who doesn't love Jesus and who is now going to have a strong influence on your heart and your mind and is going to be directing you in significant ways. Don't put yourself in that yoke because they will lead you astray because bad company does actively, really, it, it does harm, corrupt, good character. If the power of the culture's media, its movies, it's entertainment, it's podcasts, it's music. If, if the pervasive influence of social media is repeatedly telling you that right is wrong and wrong is right, then change your consumption of that. Then, and, and it's time to immerse yourself more deeply in the truth of God's word and to take in less and less of what the culture and its influence is trying to feed you. If that's, what, if that's the message that it continues to give you, is steering you away from the worship of the one true God and toward worship of self or the culture or beauty or youth or whatever it might be, it is influencing you toward darkness, and we cannot be complicit in this. Again, I know this is... We're coming off Easter Oh, we had this glorious resurrection celebration last Sunday, and now this is like so dark. This is so bleak. We're back in Israel, and it's sad, and it's sinful. And, but listen, this, this is truth. This is warning that we need as believers in Jesus Christ because there's, there's a generation, generations that go before us who would have professed we are God's people, and yet they are complicit to this stuff and going along with it. Isaiah 29 goes on, and it, the, the recurring pattern 
God speaks justice, punishment of sin, and then he provides hope for a remnant. He will judge, but he will also rescue people. And then chapter 30, we'll finish here. This is where he now speaks this whole new warning, very specific warning. Uh, Isaiah 30 starts, Ah, woe, you stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carries out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. And here it is, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Let me stop there. If you have a Sunday school knowledge of Old Testament history, this should strike you as appalling that God must say to the children of Israel, hey, don't go down to Egypt for protection. Don't go to Pharaoh as a place for refuge. Because they've had a little bit of history with Egypt, haven't they? 400 years of being in bondage in Egypt. And here's God yet having to say, because their leaders are leading them in this direction. King Ahaz had tried the alliance with Assyria. That's now collapsed. Assyria is on the move. And so the Jewish people are now thinking, now what? Backstop, let's run to Egypt. That's the next big country around us who can protect us. And here's God having to say, this is utter foolishness. Don't, don't run in this direction. He, he goes on, and he, I've already mentioned in the part from verses 9 through 11 where he condemns them saying to the prophets, you speak smooth things, tell us what we want to hear. And then he gives them this judgment in verse 12. Uh, Isaiah 30, verse 12. says, therefore... Thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Stop there. It's the seventh one. You, you not only despise my word, but you have put your hope in oppression and perverseness. The influencers of the culture are relying on means that are completely opposite of justice and righteousness. They are, they are relying on trusting in oppression and perverseness. They are, they are not just blind in sin and foolish. They are determined to say, this is what we will do. And they are willing to push that agenda by any means possible. Oppression has the idea of extortion. It, it could mean trampling on. They are using their power to force the people beneath them to do it this way. They are oppressing them. They despise God and they despise those people. And the word for perverseness literally means to turn something aside. It's walking down a path and you, you cause it to deviate and go in the wrong direction. One commentator puts it this way. Oppression points to internal policies by which the economically and socially powerful exploited their position to promote their own ends. Perverseness, on the other hand, may relate to devious external policy as they plot rebellion and enter into secret alliances by which they thought they would advance their long-term interests. These are the leaders, shamelessly crushing their own people, willing to do whatever it takes, albeit trickery if necessary, to achieve their goals because the end justifies the means. Notice, that too, that he doesn't just say they use oppression and perverseness as tools. He says they trust in them. They rely on them. This is who they are. They are staking everything on suppressing, robbing, extorting, and defrauding the very people that they have been given charge over to shepherd and care for. And they are willing to destroy them, if needs be, to accomplish this. There are those in every culture who will do everything in, in, within their reach to advance evil. 
who will do whatever it takes, whether it's oppression or perverseness, that is how they work. And we should not think ourselves to be so sophisticated that we cannot be fooled or so safe that we cannot be persecuted. We need to recognize that this is real, that at the heart of this is a spiritual battle. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The leaders in Judah are countering Isaiah the prophet by saying, Isaiah, this is out of your wheelhouse, bud. This is diplomacy. This is military. We, we've got this. You, you just keep your preaching to the temple and you worry about that and we'll worry about this stuff. Because this, this, is, this is the important crisis stuff that, that we can deal with and we can fix. And yet all along, what God has been saying through Isaiah is, this, this is not some issue of diplomacy, this is not some geopolitical matter, this is a matter of your trust in me. At the heart of this is a spiritual issue. At the heart of this is, will you obey God or will you trust only in your own agenda? Will you trust these guys who say, we know what's happening here, but... We got it. Leave your preaching aside. That's good for, good for the Sabbath, but rest of the week, we got it. We hear the same thing. You can have your Bible and you can have your teaching about it, but just keep it to yourself. Don't, don't try to carry it any further. Just, just enjoy it on Sunday morning or whenever you want to listen to it quietly by yourself in the car. But don't, but don't think about it in terms of life and culture. And the reality is what Scripture keeps telling us is these are spiritual battles. And the enemy is actively advancing an agenda of destruction that is actively encouraging people toward death. It is turning them away from God and will use oppression and perverseness. And that's why we need to trust God. And that's why we need to obey his spirit and, and help rely on his spirit. We need to rely on his spirit to help us to saturate our minds with truth so that we would be people who would be able to stand firm as Paul would say in Ephesians, in the full armor of God, so that we might be able to stand. I'll say it again. I know. This is hard stuff. It's tough to come off the Easter mountain and be back down here in the throes of everyday life and the reality of a culture that is pressuring us. But these are warnings that we need from Scripture to remind us to stand firm on truth. But, but let me end with what Isaiah, near the end of what he says in this section, is just an incredibly encouraging statement in Isaiah 30, verse 18. After all of this, and this has just been preceded by judgment in Isaiah 30, oh, 8, down through 17, about all the rebellion and the judgment that will come on them. And then all of a sudden comes verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Amen. There is the God who has said, you, you have turned, your leaders have rebelled, you're being complicit and you're following them, and I will judge you for this, but I want to hold out mercy to you. That if you will trust me, there is blessing in that. I will, I will wait on you for a season, and I will... I will, he even says, I will exalt myself. Why does God make himself great? So that we would see him and be drawn to him. So that we would realize that he is there as a strong tower to rescue us and to be merciful. And in his kindness, he exalts himself and says, if you will 
trust me, if you will stop chasing after all the things the world is chasing after, if you will stop running this path after the stuff the world is selling you, and you will believe that I am a good and gracious God, I stand there ready to bless you, to show you mercy, and to show you grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we see in the our ancient ancestors from Jerusalem the same sorts of tendencies that that challenge and convict and tempt us. The ease with which people who should know better, who were taught differently, could yet be led astray is, is a warning to us. Uh, that for all of our knowledge of who you are, all of our meditation on Scripture, Lord, help us to not be foolish. Help us to have you as Lord, serve you as Lord in everything, even when it becomes challenging, even when the culture tells us we're stupid, that we're laughingstocks for believing in this creator God who sent his son to be a redeemer. Lord, by your Spirit's help, cause us to stand as a steadfast people who rest in the truth of your word and in its simplicity. Lord, I pray that this morning, if anybody's listening to this and, and, and does not have this hope in a God who is gracious and merciful, who is even now waiting to draw them, to bring them, to see that they need him. Lord, I pray that even now, if there's somebody here who's not trusting in Christ, that they would see the Savior waiting, and this would be the time when they would run to Jesus. That they would believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for us to take the punishment for our sins, and that he rose victorious and is coming again as king. And would they, Lord, pray that they would put their trust fully in, in Jesus. And Lord, as your church, help us to stand firm, help us to be steadfast, unwavering, not, not by our own strength, but as people who are dressed in the armor of God, as people who are relying on you and your strength, but willing to stand firm in the truths of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.